Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi dhammaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi saṅgaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi Good morning again. Thirty minutes of meditation is just a tease. It's just barely enough. But you're more than welcome to continue your sitting as you listen to the words that comes to us. These words that come to us through the centuries. Words of Lord Buddha through the suttas. They're very powerful combination your meditative practice and the suttas. And you listen to them with an open heart. Today's sutta is the Devaduta Sutta from the Manjimanikaya or the middle length discourses in English it's uh, loosely translated as the divine messengers or the way i like to uh, also put a subtitle there for it would be um, on the great hell this is a different um, type of sutta uh, than the ones that we have uh, been covering um, for this past year or so. It does have its parallel, um, um, almost uh, parallel um, in the Anguttara Nikaya and uh, it's in the book of threes. Uh, I believe it's Sutta number 36 in the book of threes and it bears the same title, Devaduta Sutta as well. But it is somewhat shorter than this one. Um, but you do have uh, uh, this theme playing in different suttas. You have uh, in also in the Sangyutta Nikaya, Kokaliya Sutta, for example, uh, from the Connected Discourses, Sangyutta Nikaya, uh, as well as in other places. Um, uh, I chose this one because it uh, felt uh, a lot more thorough uh, and more descriptive and more um, giving us room to um, try to expand our understanding of what it is that is being said in it. Here we're going to be discussing a sutta where Lord Buddha dives into the reason, if you will, um, as to why ultimately 
we practice, why ultimately um, we are avoiding doing evil, doing unwholesome actions, uh, why we're practicing in the first place, uh, the three trainings of sila, of samadhi, and of panya. We don't do things haphazardly in this tradition of Lord Buddha's. There is a purpose for whatever we do, which has to be augmented by understanding as to why we're doing it. So, well, what we'll be talking about is, um, and in detail, will be the hells. Hells, H E double L. -L. <laughs> and uh, all that awaits a person um, who reappears in those realms. And um, we'll see again and again how the emphasis is placed on living um, heedlessly and negligently um, one's own life in this case, as a human being, unconcerned about one's own consequences of one's actions, leads a person there. Now, especially coming from a Judeo-Christian background, many of us have heard enough growing up, have read enough, have been told enough um, stories and things that we immediately push this whole concept of an afterlife into its own category, which simply collects dust, basically, for many of us. Um, we consider ourselves wiser, smarter, uh, more educated uh, to, well, wiser than just going ahead and believing some kind of uh, myth or, or, you know, things like that. But while we're covering this sutta, um, we need to understand that there was a reason why Lord Buddha taught this and all of his teachings, all of his teachings. So this was not, first of all, this was not something that was added later. This was not something that was simply culturally influenced, that the Buddha had to kind of appease his listeners to throw some of this topic in there every once in a while to kind of get people to be more interested or cause them to experience fear. While we're covering the sutta, we must pause for a moment and pay attention to, therefore, an unfortunate state of affairs. Many teachers today avoid this sutta and similar suttas. Uh, intentionally, because it makes the listener feel, well, uncomfortable. When uh, everyone, every, almost everyone, uh, Dhamma teachers uh, these days is trying so hard to appeal to the listener, to pretty much do the opposite of making a listener feel uncomfortable. Um, we have become entertainers in a sense to be inspiring all the time, to have the listener be moved in such a feel-good way 
that they leave with that state. So it makes the person feel cozy and comfy inside. For that reason, uh, one, of, one of the major reasons is that uh, many of today's Dhamma teachers, uh, including Buddhist monks, Buddhist monks, Theravadan Buddhist monks, either completely stay away from the sutta or avoid discussing it, or even worse, um, they try to be more apologetic about its content. Apologetic in their remarks, uh, be somewhat dismissive, uh, and also look for some other plausible or potential meanings other than taking the, uh, what we're going to be encountering as literal. So um, these are not allegorical, like some researchers and scholars and scholarly Buddhist monks have said. These are not uh, mythological symbolisms, um, allegories, and, and things of that nature. Uh, and they definitely are not just talking about the suffering that we encounter in our human lifespan. Uh, and I consider such interpretations to be misrepresentations of the Dhamma and uh, the Dhamma that Lord Buddha taught us, plain and simple, and uh, have nothing, nothing to do with the, his dispensation. For that reason, Lord Buddha was aware that these things will happen. And they had started happening even um, within his own lifetime, and especially within a hundred years after he died, where there were so many divisions, so many people were coming up with their own interpretations. To address that phenomenon, Lord Buddha constantly urges us to use the suttas and the vinaya to compare with one's own experience of the dhamma, not just come up with their own ideas. One's own experiences must be validated, um, whether true or false, uh, uh, through accessing the suttas and the teachings that he left us with. So, We try to stay away from misrepresenting the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha um, because uh, to do otherwise would be uh, a major detriment to the sasana's life in the days to come. So uh, here we see uh, an individual who has uh, after the breakup of the body, as we constantly hear or read in the suttas, after death, the person reappears in different realms, uh, depending on the consequences of one's actions, but most importantly, also given the energy pull, if you will, the drive that the person has had throughout life, the inclination of the mind, what his or her chanda meaning the enthusiasm or the desire been uh, used to uh, in its trajectory and going towards throughout life, which is also the premise for one's own thoughts, words, and actions that unfolded 
which result in the consequences, which we call kamavipaka. In life, we accept consequences for pretty much everything. If we don't pay our mortgage, if we don't pay our car insurance, if we don't pay for food, we know that we are not going to get these things. There's a consequence for each of these. If we don't dress up appropriately and go to that very important meeting, we know the consequences. If we put on the wrong shoes on either foot, we know there's going to be consequences. But for some reason, many of us have convinced ourselves that after having lived a lifetime, an entire lifespan, somehow we can just live it in a limbo. We can just, yeah, it's going to be fine type of a thing. Instead of spending the whole life, one's own life, preparing for what it is that we need to look forward to once we close our eyes for the very last time in this life. So there is a responsibility that needs to be inculcated within the listener, within the reader, within the person who's covering this sutta. And um, in many ways, as a society, as a world, global population, we have become soft and neglectful of this inconsiderate of this very important fact that our lives are nothing more than preparation for meeting for whatever's to come. But it's not something that we have no control over, obviously, because we have an entire lifespan to begin with. And that is why we practice the Dhamma as we have been uh, um, encountering and, and as we go through these suttas and in our own lives, in our own practice, that's what we've been experiencing and practicing and seeing the fruits of, tasting the fruits of. So without further ado, let us begin. So this again is from the Majjhima number 130, uh, Devaduta Sutta. <clears throat> I have personally heard this. At one time, the Blessed One was living in the monastery offered by Anatta Pindika at Jeta's Grove in the city of Salati. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus gathered there. Bhikkhus, just as a man with good eyesight, standing between two houses with doors leading inside each, would clearly see people entering, leaving, and roaming in and out of the two houses. Likewise, with the divine eye that is pure and far superior to that of the human, I see beings disappearing and appearing as they are reborn into inferior and superior states, beautiful and ugly, reappearing in good heavenly realms and in miserable hell realms. I see clearly and know how beings are reborn as they undergo various experiences all according to their actions thus. These beings have done good-intentioned actions with their body, speech, and mind, did not disrespect nor, spoke, uh, nor speak ill or blame the noble ones. Also, by having and developing right view, they have committed actions based on right view, 
As a result, once their body, physical bodies break down, after death, they reappear in a good destination, whether being reborn in the heavenly realms or among humans. Meanwhile, these other beings, having done evil-intentioned actions with their body, speech, and mind, did not respect and further spoke ill of while blaming the noble ones. Instead of developing right view, they committed actions stemming from their wrong view. As a result, once their physical bodies break down, after death, they reappear in a bad destination. Whether being reborn in the ghost realms, the animal realms, or in far lower realms, in utter misery in the hells. So here we are introduced to what Lord, Lord Buddha experiences when he's looking at individuals. Uh, he's sharing with us, he's giving us a purview of what he sees when he looks at individuals. In numerous, in fact, countless suttas, you encounter that scene where an, uh, a person who becomes an arahant, they experience the three knowledges. The first is the knowledge of one's own past lives, seeing them. And it's not necessarily just uh, something that comes, apparently. It is something that uh, the person can just hone in on, focus, and just basically like wanting to remember something that you've had happen to you in your life. Uh, and going back and just checking and, you know, looking at those memories in a similar fashion. But here, specifically for this portion of the sutta that we just read, that has to do with the second knowledge, which involves being able to see where a person is coming from, but especially where a person is going to end up, let's say a, a person who's dying, and being able to see their, um, their next uh, point in their journey, if you will. And, and by the way, uh, for all those of you keeping track of the numbering system, uh, the third knowledge would be the knowledge of the extinction or the destruction of the uh, asavas or the mental contaminants. But the second knowledge is what Lord Buddha is uh, hinting at here. He's giving us this example, this beautiful image of two houses. Imagine standing about 50 feet or 10 feet away from two houses, adjoining houses. And you get to see who's going in and who's, going, who's coming out. He's saying to us, Lord Buddha, how it is very similar to that, to be able to see. Now, some might hear this or read this and say, well, that's not possible. Or that sounds too far out. Well, that is why we need to uh, approach the Dhamma with an open heart, but that doesn't mean gullibility, being gullible, but putting it into practice. The mind with which you operated yesterday is not 
the same today after you have sat through a retreat. The lifestyle that you have today or is totally different than it was 10 years ago where you didn't practice sila. There is an actual tangible change, transformation that happens in the body, in the mind, in the physicality, in even the, the heart of a person who's going through the path, the patipada, the path of this practice. So we need to also leave room for a deeper understanding as we move forward on this path, as we're looking at scrutinizing, because we must also do that in hearing and reading the Lord Buddha's uh, words of some of these experiences that he's uh, sharing with us. And we'll be doing so uh, more so as we go on. So here we don't see Lord Buddha talking about the birth into the heavenly realms, by the way, because if you ever have read enough suttas, you would see a you know, several different patterns. But one of the patterns is that Lord Buddha did not care as much about heavenly birth. Of course, between hell birth and heavenly birth, there is obviously a, a preference because there's, there's no suffering you know, in the heavenly realms. But his focus would be on the hell realms to caution the person, to caution us to not allow that to happen, to put everything, every, um, every deterrent, every obstacle on the way so that the person could turn their trajectory towards living a life with sila samadhi panya. So we're not going to see Lord Buddha in the sutta going further into the heavenly realms other than what we just saw there being mentioned. So he's going to just straight away jump into the reappearance or the rebirth of the person into the hell realms. Even though the title might be uh, confusing for some as the divine messengers, and we're going to see in a minute as to what was that in reference to. Once there, bhikkhus, the person has reappeared in hell, the wardens of hell will grab him by his hands and feet, dragging him to meet King Yama of the underworld. As they declare, Lord, this person did not honor nor pay any respects to their mother and father. He was disrespectful towards recluses and Brahmins or any of the elders, for he was discourteous and inconsiderate, living a life that sought to separate people from each other, being unkind and selfish. May your highness assign to him the punishment he deserves. Um, King Yama, many people have translated uh, or interpreted this as he is the lord of the underworld, or he is the king of the, even though it says king, uh, Yama Raja, basically. But um, we're going to see that he's just a, a, um, a conduit, a, an official presence whereby um, 
the next phase of this person who just present was presented to him, let's say to King Yama, is about to encounter the next portion of his journey, if you will. So um, it officiates it in that sense because, uh, sense, because we're not going to be seeing King Yama exercising any special powers or anything. Um, by the way, um, there is a class of Yama gods. Um, there is not enough mention, uh, obviously in the sutta, but uh, also in else, uh, elsewhere commentaries as to why uh, Yama god would be uh, there and, and, and presented um, as the king of, let's say, hell. Um, but um, Yama gods are uh, superior gods in the heavenly realms. And um, there's a phrase or a sentence that he says further in the sutta, um, which can give us a, an understanding as to where he was coming from and where is his mind specifically in relation to all that he is surrounded by in this miserable realm, which he's not subject to, by the way. So he's simply there almost like proxy or like a placeholder. And the man's, man says, uh, oh, so uh, first uh, King Yama is going to address the person. Then King Yama of the underworld cross questions him as he interrogates him by asking, you, sir, did you not see the first divine messenger that showed up among you humans? And the man says, sir, I did not see any messengers. Then King Yama of the underworld would ask him, did you not see a toddler or a baby who has to learn how to stand and walk and keeps falling down and mashed in his own urine and feces? Then the man replies, yes, sir, I did see. And King Yama of the underworld tells him, well then, being much older and mature than that little child, with some common sense, did it not occur to you, being liable to being born myself, seeing that I also am not immune from further rebirth, I should now start doing good actions, whether by body, speech, and mind? And the man would say, sir, I could not do such actions. I was too busy and negligent. How many times have we um, skipped on doing something, even though we knew that it was important, only to later on face ourselves, face the mirror and say, well, I wish I did that. But I was just like, well, why? Well, because uh, I, was, I was just postponing. I was postponing. Many times from students, I hear the words, oh, Bhante, I'm sorry, I'm procrastinating. Oh, I know I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to, you know, uh, watch my mind or uh, practice sila with this or that in that situation. But it just, do you see while it's happening? Yes, I just keep postponing it that tomorrow I'll be doing a much better job. Well, a whole lifetime can slip by as a person procrastinates. And this is one way of Lord Buddha uh, pointing this out flat out to us and see what we do with it. King Yama of the underworld then says, well, 
because of your negligence, you did not commit any good actions, and instead, you engage in evil actions by body, speech, and mind. Now, as a result, you will most certainly be punished for these evil actions, which you can see were not committed by your mother, father, brother, sister, friends, companions, or blood relatives. Similarly, these evil acts were not done by recluses, brahmins, or the devas. No, they were all done by you and you alone, and therefore, you alone will face their negative results. As it has come up a few times, questions basically related with something like a theme like this. Many times we bring in our own uh, old paradigms or narratives or ways of interpreting such statements. Meaning, earlier I was mentioning about our previous conditioning, let's say in Judeo-Christian traditions. Hearing or reading a statement like that, immediately we think of a punisher, somebody who is coming at us, somebody who's going to judge us. In fact, we're going to see, and we are seeing in a sense, uh, we'll, we'll see it more so, uh, how King Yama is not a judge per se. He's just pointing out, holding up a mirror to the person to show the person their own actions, their own choices. And that's why Lord Buddha puts such a huge emphasis on Chetana or Sanchetana, which completely changed the way uh, Kamma was understood in ancient India and for 2,600 years now. Because Kamma or Karma was already a term that was used in those days. In Jainism, you see it also in the, in, in, in the Brahmins traditions. So they had an understanding of karma, but their understanding was totally different. It was unchanging. Or you could uh, empty it out kind of a thing, like in the case of Jains. But in the case of Buddhism, the way that Lord Buddha interpreted it and presented it to the world, like he had done with other um, commonly uh, used words or principles, he said how the person's intention behind the action is crucial, not the action per se. So he would always ask, ask, what was the intention behind this? When people came to argue or debate with him or students came in asking about karma and karma vipaka or the fruits of karma. So the intentionality is extremely important. That is what we see also being highlighted by King Yama to this person. Bhikkhus, next, King Yama of the underworld proceeds to interrogate him about the second divine messenger by asking him, you, sir, did you not see the second divine messenger that showed up among you humans? And the man replies, sir, I did not see the second messenger. Then King Yama of the underworld would ask him, Did you not see among your fellow humans a woman or a man, 80, 90, or 100 years old, decayed and bent over like the old framework of a roof, going about supporting himself while leaning on a stick, shivering, ill, with all signs of youth having left him? 
with no teeth, gray hair, covered all over with spots on his shriveled old skin. Then the man replies, Yes, sir, I did see. And King Yama of the Underworld tells him, Well then, while already a mature person, yourself, with some common sense, did it not occur to you to know? Being liable to old age and decay myself, seeing that I also am not immune from getting old, I should now start doing good actions, whether by body, speech, and mind. To which the man responds, Sir, I could not do such actions. I was too busy and negligent. There's a mention, I believe it's in the Dhammapada, where Lord Buddha, beautiful verse, where the Buddha says, uh, emphasizes the importance of not delaying doing good. Not delaying doing good. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll say that nice thing to that person who deserves it um, next time I see them versus picking up the phone and calling them and, and saying them and putting them in this incredibly amazing mood or state simply because you generously shared something truthful with them and made another human being shine, which would go for days or weeks sometimes. But you could have easily waited until next week, until you saw them. There's so many opportunities that we are missing missing from doing simply because we delay and in that sutta in that vagga where um, it's about uh, being generous i forgot the name of the sutta and i'm horrible with actually memorization of verses um, but the gist of it is this if you have the desire to make an offering to someone who deserves it that you feel like, yeah, yeah, I want to I do that. Don't delay. You don't know what would happen next. You might lose that money. You might lose that wallet. You might go bankrupt, or you might die, or the person might die, or never see them again. So similarly, when we hear doing good, we have all the opportunities in the world so long as we're still alive. If you can just take that from, this, from today's sutta, that's already a lot. King Yama of the Underworld then says, well, because of your negligence, you did not commit any good actions and instead you engaged in evil actions in body, speech, and mind. Now, as a result, you will most certainly be punished for these actions, which you can see were not committed by your mother father, brother, sister, brothers, companions, or blood relatives. Similarly, these evil acts were not done by recluses, brahmins, or devas. No, they were all done by you and you alone. And therefore, you alone will face their negative results. Ajahn Mun, uh, he used to say uh, how um, <laughs> it is not the actions of someone else or the defilements that someone else has in their hearts that is going to take you to hell. It is yours, your own defilements. He would always point the 
lens, the flashlight back onto the person. Whenever we are leaning into someone else's world and saying, ah, he or she is the one to blame. They're the ones who are at fault. They shouldn't be doing that. Ah, whatever. That we think like that, it's really, it's, 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 it's basically stupid because ultimately we need to be concerned about our own defilements because our own defilements are the things that are going to take us in front of King Yama. And it is the purity of our heart that is not going to take us there. So that is what we're seeing here again. When the person says, it was not your mom, it was not your dad. You know, um, when psychology started uh, blossoming in the 19th century and 20th century, you know, psychoanalysis and Freud and everyone else afterwards, um, there was this, uh, there is still, I see still, uh, you know, people would come in, in, in sessions, clinical sessions, and they are unloading uh, all this, you know, blame basically upon their mothers and fathers, usually mothers. Um, and okay, fine, I get it, the first two, three hundred sessions, but enough already. Okay, the person has to take on the responsibility of, okay, what am I doing with this? In spite of all that commotion, all that hell that I walked out of, let's say, the dysfunctional family I came out of, or am I still there? And why? Am I dragging it on and on and on and on? So uh, again, this is a lesson here. So it's not like a persecutory, it's like punitive tone. He's just like pointing out the facts here to the person. It wasn't your cousin, it wasn't your brother, it wasn't your sister, your mom, your boss. It was you. You were behind your intentions, behind your actions. Next, Bhikkhus, King Yama of the Underworld, again interrogates him about the third divine messenger by asking, you, sir, did you not see the third divine messenger that showed up among you humans? And the man replies, sir, I did not see the third messenger. Then King Yama of the Underworld asks him, did you not see among your fellow humans a very sick woman or a man, someone who is covered with a foul odor, drenched in their own feces and urine, helplessly dependent on others for care and attention? no longer self-reliant nor able to move freely anymore, but entirely dependent on others, whether in being lifted or placed back down. And he responds, yes, sir, I did see. Then King Yama of the underworld tells him, well then, while already a mature person yourself with some common sense, did it not occur to you to know being liable to getting sick myself seeing that I also am not immune from being struck down with some illness, I should now start doing good actions, whether by body, speech, and mind. When my father was very ill and uh, um, he was in the hospital before he died, um, we would go uh, every day, every day we were there, um, and uh, you would see your parent, your loved one, I'm sure you know yourself, you've experienced it yourself, where you know of someone close to you who has experienced this. 
uh, an elderly person who was not an elderly, you know, all the time. They used to be attractive. They used to be young. They used to have lovely, beautiful skin. Definitely no, not surrounded by their own feces or sitting on it. Even the, the mentioning of this sometimes might, you know, be off-putting for some listeners or viewers. Um, that's why I mentioned uh, the earlier uh, portion of, of my talk. But what I, the reason why I mentioned this now um, is because I would see individuals who would willingly, intentionally avoid going to see their loved ones in the hospital or the nursing home. And they limit it to their birthdays, let's say. Oh, I'll go and see grandma or grandpa when, they, when it's their birthday or on Christmas or on Easter or something like that. Meanwhile, the person is, well, it doesn't stop, you know, the old age, so long as the person is alive. People have to come and clean them. They, that is um, demeaning. I, I, I can't tell you how many times, because uh, I used to go to elderly homes and nursing homes, I think I mentioned a few times already, and I would talk to these individuals, these elderly individuals, and you would see it in their eyes. Sometimes they would tell you how embarrassed they are that someone else is wiping them. How they can't do those very basic things anymore. Someone has to feed them. Someone has to tuck them in bed. Someone has to actually give them a pill and then tuck them in bed. And I used to hear stories where individuals would, in fact, uh, wake up the next day and go into their drawer to get some money or some of their, you know, memorabilia, like even jewelry in some cases, uh, that were now missing. Because the supposed caretakers had actually paid them a visit when they were sleeping nicely, drugged, basically and went through the drawers and took the money that were offered to them just for, you know, pocket money, just in case they had to buy something. Jewelry were missing, things like that. These are actual incidents that I personally witnessed. I was told, I was informed by some of the elderly individuals who were not, you know, in dementia or anything like that. But they were too afraid to report because they knew that these people would come and hurt them later on. Unfortunately, these things are happening. Helplessness. The person feels helpless. We think that this is something that we could never encounter. It's not us. It's with somebody else that this could happen. Well, that's what these individuals felt when they were growing up in the 40s. They were bodybuilders. They were head turners. People would stop and just like, who is that? I wonder if I can get her to spend some time with me or I wonder if he would like me type of it. These were those individuals. So King Yama is asking like, what do you think? Like, you know, what were you thinking? Didn't you see the possibility? In fact, if you are 
fortunate enough to live that long, that you also are going to be in that state. But for some reason, many of us think that we're just going to close our eyes while we're healthy, go to sleep, and that'll be our death. Comfy, surrounded by roses, and everything is fine and dandy. Well, uh, to which the, uh, so I should now start doing so. So King Yama is asking, like, you, you should have thought about these things. And why didn't you? And the man's response, sir, I could not do such actions. I was too busy and negligent. King Yama of the underworld then says, well, because of your negligence, you did not commit any good actions. And instead, you engaged in evil actions by body, speech, and mind. It's easier to gossip, to slander, to talk nonsense, to engage in frivolous speech um, than it is to pay someone a genuine compliment or to say something good or to do something good. And we have this life, this opportunity. King Yama, again, he's repeating this section. So he says, it's not your mom or dad who were responsible for you, uh, your actions. Uh, um, so um, they were all done by you and you alone, and therefore you alone will face their negative results. So then he goes to the fourth messenger. Then Bhikkhu, uh, Bhikkhu's King Yama of the underworld interrogates him further, this time about the fourth divine messenger by asking, you, sir, did you not see the fourth divine messenger that showed up among you humans? As the man replies, Sir, I did not see the fourth messenger. Then King Yama of the underworld asks him, Did you not see among your fellow humans how once the authorities caught a criminal or a thief, they would expose them to all kinds of punishments, such as flogging them with lashes, beating with various kinds of sticks and clubs, cutting off their hands or feet, cutting both hands and feet, by cutting the ears or cutting the nose, cutting both ears and the nose, by putting them in the porridge of boiling pot, giving them the polished shell shave, putting them in Rahu's mouth, garlanding them with wet flames, burning their hands with a torch, beating them until the body is like straw, hanging them up and stretching them out like an antelope's hide, suspending them on meat hooks, cutting squares out of their flesh, burning them in acid, driving a spike from ear to ear and then rotating it, having them squat over a blazing, blazing straw footstool, sprinkling boiling oil all over the body, throwing them to the hungry and vicious dogs to be devoured, or impaling them on a pole until death, or cutting off their head with a sword. And the man responds, yes, sir. I did see. Oh, by the way, these are types of punishments uh, that criminals and those uh, living at the time of the Buddha um, who, who basically broke the law of the land uh, did face um, by the authorities, by the king, by the princes, uh, by the ruling, basically those who were uh, watching over the communities, etc. So these punishments or punitive measures were known at the time of Lord Buddha. Uh, when listeners were hearing Lord Buddha uh, mention these, they knew what these were. Some of them actually seen these. Uh, 
and um, you know, growing up in in um, for a certain time, I was born in the Middle East. I was born in Beirut and 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 Lebanon, uh, Beirut, Lebanon. And then you would hear stories about how things are done outside of Lebanon in other uh, countries nearby in the Middle East. And to this day, there are some countries. If you go, if you steal, uh, once you're caught, uh, they will ask you. Um, well, which hand did you steal with? And they will cut it off, plain and simple. Uh, many of us living in the West think that this is just like, you know, um, we, these are things or fairy tales. No, these things are real and they were real then. And, uh, but something else I've noticed, uh, the crime rate, is far less in these countries now than, than it is basically uh, in, in, while living in the Western country or somewhere where we just completely abhor such uh, punitive measures. Uh, I'm not for or against any of this, but it's interesting because some people, in fact, Buddhist monks, I've heard Theravadan monks, who were completely against corporal punishment saying we are civilized and we absolutely should despise and, and uh, should, should not uh, condone such actions. Uh, if you go to Thailand, for example, there are punishments. People can be caned in uh, Vietnam or, or Malaysia and places. There are a set of rules that people have to follow, which many people from the West, when they go where there aren't such punitive measures, uh, many of these individuals, let's say, who engaged by you know, law-breaking behavior and they are caught, they have to face the consequences. I forgot which country it was in Asia as we were walking into to the custom, this was years ago, uh, but not that long ago. Uh, so you're holding on your, to your passport and you're going in, but there's a huge sign above your head, several of it actually, in case you missed the first one, that in case you are carrying, for example, drugs with you, they don't ask how, what kind, just drugs. If you're caught, the punishment is death. So please, if you uh, have it, dispose of it or get out of our country before you walk in type of a thing. So the person can become self-conscious because there's death here. I, rem I remember how one time I was going to go, I was uh, supposed to go and teach, uh, you know, be a professor at one of the universities in the Middle East. I won't name their name, but, and they sent me the application for their visa, because apparently as a U.S. citizen, you have to have a, a visa to go in. And in the application, it says clearly, clearly, that in case you are seen or found to be guilty of, uh, you know, some law that you broke, uh, and there is a possibility of death. So make sure you know this before you ask for our visa to come into our country. So these are, I'm sharing these things because these are happening today in the world um, and they've been happening. Uh, and 
even though we're shocked by the fact that these things exist, but even in Buddhism, I've noticed uh, teachers, as I said, Buddhist monks, Theravadin on top of that, Buddhist monks who completely shun this idea of punishment. And some might even say we shouldn't even have uh, prisons or jails, this and that. Um, I have a different position on that uh, because not everybody is functioning on all cylinders, you know. Uh, not everybody is functioning with ethical standards, even though we would like them to be. So um, we need to have a more responsible position uh, taking when it comes to um, the morality and the perversions and how much we are okay with. Uh, when we look at the West today, we see so many perversions and it's exponential, it's growth. So being more cognizant of this, because the Lord Buddha was never against, let's say, King Pasenadi doing his kingly duties when it came to criminals. He never interfered. You don't see that. I've never come across such a statement from the Buddha or a behavior from him uh, or his students. Of course, he would help like in the case of Angulimala. But not everybody is going to be an Angulimala. Angulimala immediately became a Sotapanna. Not every criminal is becoming a Sotapanna in the, in the prison system, you know. So we need to have a broader scope of understanding and appreciation instead of looking at it just as a black and white type of a thing, where um, punishment, even the word punishment, we have a very strong position towards, against actually. Uh, so I just wanted to throw that in there just in case, um, you know, because I heard that statement from Abiku and I was kind of um, surprised by that. Um, uh, so, um, so these punishments you would see, uh, polished shell shave, you know, the person would just get uh, shaved from, um, seashell basically so these are torturous experiences throwing a garland of flowers basically we don't hear flowers but it's a wet flame so they uh, dip it in oil um, and then have the person wear it as they light it up uh, all kinds of uh, you know nasty uh, um, we're used to calling them sadistic even um, you know, um, like the Spanish Inquisit Inquisition type of tortures here. So anyhow, he's, he's uh, moving on from that. Then King Yama of the Underworld tells him, well then, while already a mature person yourself with some common sense, did it not occur to you how if someone who does evil actions in their, pre in their present life could receive such harsh punishment, then what kind of horrific consequences must be waiting for them once they leave this body? So let me now start doing good actions, whether by body, speech, and mind. And he replies, sir, I could not do such actions. I was too busy and negligent. During the past century, uh, with this whole atheism business and secularism and 
going to another extreme from where we were, from uh, eternalist view to annihilationist view, um, many people have come to misrepresent even science. Science investigates, and they put themselves into the science camp while claiming to be atheist. Well, an atheist also believes in something, believes that, let's say, the other, the afterlife doesn't exist. Well, that's a belief, which is, again, non-scientific. We need to prove it, and that's why we meditate. That's why we practice to see if this is true or not, which is our laboratory, which is our laboratory to test. Instead of categorically deny the existence of something, like secular Buddhists nowadays do, or atheists claim. Well, that is one of the best and quickest ways to also create what we have around us today. And that is also at the, uh, I would say, crux of the reason why I chose this sutta uh, over another for this week, because of what's happening in the world. During the past two decades uh, or more, when I was engaged in teaching, whether in high school settings, college, etc., and as a Dhamma teacher, I have seen how society has become more and more decrepit. I wasn't thinking that this was going to happen in my lifetime, honestly, but this has been happening. And when we look at the causes and conditions for such a phenomenon, and we look, we look at children, we look at children, obviously, to see if there's empathy or apathy. And there now is more apathetic tendencies versus empathetic. And you see this across the board. And not just in one culture, one part of the world. And you also see this especially and more sadly from individuals who hold responsible positions in society. People trust them. And they all have been influenced by this annihilationist view, which is going contrary to what we are reading here, what we are going over in this uh, Devaduta Sutta. And now you probably understand why the two united in, 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 in secular Buddhism, for example, where um, I might have shared it here, but one day I was giving a talk at a center in Los Angeles and after I, have given, I had given the talk, uh, uh, finished, um, people were interacting with, you know, uh, coming over and talking and asking questions. And there was this man, middle-aged man, uh, well-educated. Uh, he came over and he introduced himself and he said, I just came because I saw a video of you talking about Buddhist hells and hell, uh, heavens. And I just wanted to come and check to see if it, you know, if you stand by that, all that stuff. And I said, I'm sorry, what, what do you mean by all that stuff? And he said, all that hell and heaven business. And he said, I'm a secular Buddhist and I like your talks, but that kind of was off-putting for me. I didn't like that. And I said, I'm sorry you didn't like it, but I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to do anything about it. So basically he was trying to find if I came uh, out of that conversation regretting having given that talk or show him that I am more 
educated or sophisticated, which is what secular Buddhists are presenting themselves to be, unfortunately. First of all, you cannot have secular Buddhists, by the way. It's, it's an oxymoron, as the, the way I see it. Uh, because you're nullifying karma or kamma. You're nullifying what exists beyond this realm of existence. Well, these are huge points. You're nullifying the consequence of actions. You're saying kamma vipakas don't exist. That's what it essentially you're saying. So that is a narrow view which has everything to do with the annihilationist view, by the way, which Lord Buddha addressed in the Brahmajala Sutta, which is from the Diga Nikaya. Actually, the first one, where he addressed the 62 views, wrong views, because they either held to the uh, eternalist view and they lived happily ever after, or may he attain Nibbana in his next life type of a wish that many people make. Eternal, the postponing part. And the annihilationist view that once the person dies, lights out, which many of these criminals in today's society adhere to. Because you are relinquishing you're freeing yourself, freeing, quote-unquote, yourself from the responsibility of the consequences, which this sutta is proving to all these people that all that is uh, nonsense. Uh, and uh, so he's done with the fourth messenger. So furthermore, because King Yama of the underworld interrogates him once more, this time about the, um, well, the fourth messenger was over, so we go to the fifth one about the fifth divine messenger by asking, you, sir, did you not see the fifth divine messenger that showed up among you humans? And the man says, sir, I did not see the fifth messenger. And he says, uh, the young King Yama, did you not see among your fellow humans someone who died or a corpse that was one, two, or three days old, bloated, turned black and blue, or festering with worms? Yes, sir, I did see. Then King Yama of the underworld tells him, well then, while already a mature person yourself with some common sense, did it not occur to you how being subject to death myself, seeing that I also am not immune from dying as my body turns into such a corpse, I should now start doing good actions, whether by body, speech, and mind? And then he replies, sir, I could not do such actions. I was too busy and negligent. King Yama of the underworld then says, well, because of your negligence, you did not commit any good actions, and instead you engaged in evil actions by body, speech, and mind. Now, as a result, you will most certainly be punished for these act evil actions, which, we, uh, which you can see were not committed by your mother, father, brother, sister, friends, etc. And bhikkhus, uh, so um, well, let me just say that last part of King Yama's statement. No, they were all done by you and you alone, and therefore you alone will face their negative results. Bhikkhus, at this point, King Yama of the underworld, having finished his cross-questioning, done with his interrogation about the fifth divine messenger, suddenly falls silent and speaks no more. So again, King Yama is not 
the one who's giving the punishment. The person has already given himself the punishment. That's why they're there. Nobody really dragged him there. It is the person. It is the person who holds so much power. Something as far, well, far less severe uh, than this, something like uh, going and passing an interview for a job that you always wanted. Well, you go through the stages of the interview process, and then you get the job, and then you're kind of stunned. Others come and ask you, how did you, well, I don't know how, how I got it. Well, you had to undergo the grueling process. You had to submit this. You had to do this. You had to type every single letter of every single word on a resume. Send it. Do it. This. Or eating food, by the way. If you're hungry, starving, you feed yourself and you're no longer starving. Who's responsible for that? We accept all these roles. Mundane, although, but we accept them. But when it comes to situation like this, which all of us have encountered and will encounter, we think that we don't have power. Somebody else is judging us. No, it's our papa kamma. Papa means evil or wrong. Kamma is the action. It is our bad action, evil action. Wrong choices, intentions behind our actions that are doing the rest. We've committed the evil action. Those are now doing the rest. So it's the consequences. And in the Dhammapada, we have verses where Lord Buddha says, uh, one, oneself is the owner of, 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 of one's kamma. So don't point the finger at anybody else for your predicament, for your state. If you, there's a deformity in your body, well, don't blame your parents or the situations. If some injury happens, it's not someone else's fault, ultimately. In fact, it's not even a matter of fault finding. It is an action that produced an, its consequence. Pachaya. Upajati. These are dependent. Basically, these come from the dependent arising or dependent conditioning, the 12 links. Dependent on this, this follows. That same thing, that same formula is playing out here, even taking a person to these realms. So once King Yama remains silent, meaning that's it. I mean, I just had to ask you these questions. That's my job. Hopefully, that might stay with you in some later life when you're out of hell eventually. But that is just to show us these five messengers that Lord Buddha has used this mechanism. This is immediately followed by the wardens of hell beginning to inflict unimaginable pain on him by punishing him through the fivefold torture. 
Thus, they start by driving two hot iron spikes through his two palms, and one in each, and two other hot spikes through his two feet, and a fifth hot iron spike through the middle of his chest. And although he experiences excruciating pain throughout, that is so severe and unbearably more than the mind and the body could ever stand, he still does not die from it. That is, until the severity of evil actions committed by him is fully dissipated and finished. This last sentence, until the severity of his evil actions committed by him are fully dissipated and finished, is repeated, I think, 20 times or so in this sutta itself. What this is saying, as if for 45 years, the teaching that Lord Buddha gave us about anicca is not enough. What this is saying is that even the hell realms are not eternal. Even King Yama, for example, sitting there, that is not an eternal position. The Brahma gods. I notice how with my encounter and talk with, with different people, I see how this eternalism idea, earlier I was talking about the annihilationist, which is one extreme of, uh, you know, one of the basis of wrong views. The other basis is the eternalist view. You know, the Disney idea of just, and they lived happily ever after. Yeah, yeah, we're always seeking for that. The carrot on a stick, you know, the donkey fall. That's the same premise. So we carry that with us, even when we're reading about hells. We immediately conjure up the image of eternity, eternal damnation, eternal bliss in the heavens. There's no such thing in the Dhamma. Unfortunately, a few centuries later, after the Buddha died, you had these influences infiltrated into the Dhamma, into the different regions, uh, wherever the Dhamma spread. These showed up, showed their ugly heads, and they became part of those traditions. They even uh, deified uh, uh, Buddha, Gautama, made him other than this person that he was, this teacher that he was, who died, who died, you know? But we, when we come to, especially in the context of the hell realm here, Please remember that even this, no matter how bad it's going to get, it also will, well, it has a time limit. The severity will drop as the person undergoes the consequences of their evil actions. So bear that in mind, please. Next, the wardens of hell repeatedly hit and strike him, throwing him around as they hammer him with heavy blows and start cutting and slashing him up with large blades. But although he experiences excruciating pain throughout that is so severe and unbearably more than the mind and the body could ever stand, he still does not die from them. That is, until the severity of his evil actions committed by him is fully, or, uh, is fully dissipated and finished. Um, when I was starting, well, my studies years ago, I would just be like, okay, the pain that this is describing is pretty bad. So obviously, the person is going to die from just the pain. 
Well, it, it was clarified very quickly to me by my teachers that that's not the case because this is not the physical body that the person is occupying anymore, which has a time limit. If, if the person is, uh, a human body is, is um, tortured, uh, um, uh, well, to some extent, uh, they will die. There's a, you know, there's a level of tolerance. And once you cross that threshold, the person dies. Well, not when we are occupying a body that is manifested in the hell realms. Because the commentaries say how the, the person dies, but they're immediate. It's so immediate. It's like almost like winking. It's almost like closing and, and you know, opening up your eyelids. That was the death. The person thought that they're, they're now out of it. You know, if you've ever gone into uh, surgery and, and under general anesthesia, they come in and put on the, you know, uh, the, the oxygen mask and, and all of a sudden you're, you're out. Well, there's no out here until the severity is completely gone. Which makes it truly hellish. So even if we think that these things cannot be real, by the way, just um, or that they're merely allegorical accounts or statements or stories um, having some metaphorical purpose, let's say, one must stop to consider, well, through what means are we making such deductions, such assumptions, such conclusions, that these are just allegory, uh, allegorical? People already knew what suffering was. Those people who were sitting and listening to Lord Buddha, the bhikkhus, they knew what suffering is. If you ever gone hungry for one or two days, like some bhikkhus would in those days, because not every house had food to offer, or your knees are hurting so you can't go, or you're alone in the jungle, they knew what suffering is. And plus, they had lived their own lay lives before putting on the robes. So they knew how suffering was in that lifetime. So Lord Buddha did not have to tell them about suffering. They knew it. And they knew it, and that's why they were there, his, having become ordained to put an end to suffering. So another question would be, why would Lord Buddha then have to warn them? Because that's what you see him trying to do. Um, so that they don't stop striving. They don't stop practicing until they've reached that point of no return. And that is where you see Lord Buddha in, on several occasions uh, turning to his bhikkhus and saying, uh, whatever, I, you know, the biggest thing that I want, the, the only thing that I want from you, the student, is to at least reach the state of sotapanna. Because that's going to cut the cord. It will destroy the bridge that connects you to the lower realms. That's it. That's why he didn't advocate for heavenly birth. He didn't care for that. They existed, of course. They existed. So 
so if we have the position of uh, being critical of the sutta or of its contents, saying, oh, it's just symbolism, Bhante, don't take it too far. Don't, oh, you're not taking it literally, are you? Um, there are some scholars and well-respected individuals in the, in, in, in the field of Dhamma who unfortunately uh, look at this as not to be taken literally. And that is, again, misrepresentation of the Dhamma. Because what that is doing is basically squeezing the Dhamma into one's own narrow pipeline. Pipeline of their own capacity of intellectual analysis. So there's a lot of ego there. So um, please, let's, 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 um, let's be more invested in the Dhamma to extract what Lord Buddha is trying to say, because he's trying to get us to remove that arrow of ignorance from our heart. And uh, yesterday, this thought came to mind about right view. And I noticed that many of us uh, whether Buddhists or not, uh, but especially uh, even as bhikkhus or dhamma teachers or practitioners, we immediately assume that if I am practicing, then I automatically must have right view. Wrong. That is not necessarily the case. We look at a you know, Buddhist, somebody who says I'm a Buddhist, or even a bhikkhu, a Theravadan bhikkhu. We say, ah, so he must have a uh, he must have right view. Not necessarily. Right view happens when the person tastes the Dhamma, when they see the Dhamma through their own efforts, by the way. Through their own efforts. Angulimala saw the Dhamma. That's why he dropped down to his knees, throwing his weapons aside, because he saw he was ready. So let us not be fooled by labels, attire, outfit, how we look, our head is shaven or not. It is the arrow of ignorance. Is it out of the heart? So a person might be a scholar, uh, and there's this hyphenated term, scholar monk these days. Ultimately, we need to ask, is this person advocating for their own means or their own goals? Uh, basically, commentators' main objective is to impress. But is that the goal of this person, or is it the Dhamma? How staunchly are they really dedicated to the Dhamma? How much love is there? How much respect and appreciation is there for the Dhamma, for the triple gem? And that is the clue that you could have in smelling if there is a presence of right view in this person. And always check the behavior. Always check the behavior because there's a lot of heretical views these days I'm noticing which is making me work overtime uh, uh, to, to do my part to address uh, the presence of both the eternalist view and the annihilationist view that I am now seeing in robes. 
bhikkhus, so-called scholarly monks, are promoting these ideas as they are minimizing and misrepresenting the Dhamma. That's why I wanted to start these series of suttas where you explore and you really go back, put these self-proclaimed experts aside and just go dig into the suttas, taste the suttas for yourself. Test the suttas, the contents with your own practice dedicated practice and that is the highest form of reverence and respect you could have for the triple gem that is the embodiment of the three training sila samadhi panya so annihilationist view this is actually a slap in the face of that this sutta that's why lord buddha made it very clear that a person who doesn't have right view they can't see the Dhamma. They are drenched in the mire of wrong view. So please don't be fooled by the person's position, title, that they must be, well, they must possess right view. No, it doesn't come with the same, you know, uh, it, it doesn't come like that. Next, the wardens of hell hang him upside down and ruthlessly start cutting him up with hatches. But although he experiences excruciating pain throughout, that is so severe and unbearably more than the mind and the body could ever stand, he still does not die from it. That is, until the severity of evil actions committed by him is fully dissipated and finished. Next, the wardens of hell tie him up to a chariot and drag him repeatedly back and forth over an uneven ground, bumpy road with rocks protruding out of the ground. Uneven ground that is ablaze, burning, as it burns constantly with their unrelenting flames. But although he experiences excruciating pain throughout, etc., it's the same thing playing. Uh, until, you know, he, he doesn't die until the severity of his evil actions are dissipated and finished. Next, the wardens of hell force him to ceaselessly climb up and down an immense mountain that is completely covered with blazing red-hot coals. But although he experiences excruciating pain throughout that is so severe and unbearably more than the mind and the body could ever stand, he still does not die from it. That is, until the severity of his actions, evil actions committed by him, is fully dissipated and finished. Next, the wardens of hell put, uh, pull and drag him by his feet and throw him face down into a massive red-hot copper pot where he is boiled in its molten scum. While there, he is pushed down to its bottom, pulled up again, and churned around with their hooks, by the way, and churned around in the molten pot. But although he experiences excruciating pain throughout, that is so severe and unbearably more than the mind and the body could ever stand, he still does not die from it. That is, until the severity of his evil actions uh, dissipated. This is followed by the wardens of hell dragging and tossing him into the great hell, which has four sides with four immense gates and is divided into two massive sections. The great hell is surrounded by giant iron walls and is covered with a huge iron lid as its roof. Even its ground is made of iron, 
and spreads for 700 miles as it blazes and burns with flames continuously without any rest. It's huge, <laughs> 700 miles. There are flames that gush from within these massive iron walls, whereby a fire shoots out from the eastern wall of the great hell that reaches out to and scorches the western wall. So it's so powerful that it travels hundreds of miles, like a laser beam, if you will. Well, the people are there. People, beings who have committed evil actions are there. They are being exposed to this fire in this box that's covered on all six sides with iron, which is burning hot already. Now the same thing happens from the western wall. It shoots out to the eastern and this, from the north to the south, from the south to the north as well. So and a fire shoots out from the bottom that reaches out to and scorches the iron ceiling above. And the fire shoots down from the top, raining down and scorching the vast iron floor at the bottom and everyone in between. But although the, he experiences excruciating pain throughout that is so severe and unbearably, more than the mind and the body could ever stand, he still does not die from it. That is, until the severity of evil actions committed by him is fully dissipated and finished. Bhikkhus, after a vast amount of time has elapsed, suddenly he notices how finally the great hell's eastern gate opened. Seeing this, he rushes towards it with great speed. But as he does so, he burns his outer skin, his inner skin, his flesh, ligaments and tendons all burn in the flame where even his bones begin releasing smoke, burning alive as he does, on his, uh, his, does so on his mad dash for escape. Yet, uh, if you've ever seen the uh, part of the trilogy of The Lord of the Rings, uh, there is that scene, I think it's in the second or third of the trilogy, uh, portions of the movie where there is this evil castle that has these huge metal doors and just to open it it takes a while so you're hearing a lot of clinking and clacking and whatever and then finally it opens but it opens so slow because it's so massive so that is the image that um, as I was uh, translating the sutta that's the image I got um, Yet, although having suffered so much to have gotten that far, even if he gets close to it, to the gate, the immense gate is again slammed shut as he finds himself yet again trapped inside the great hell. But although he experiences excruciating pain throughout that is so severe and unbearably more than the mind and the body could ever stand, he still does not die from it. That is until the severity of evil actions committed by him is fully dissipated and finished. Further, because after a vast amount of time has elapsed, suddenly he notices how finally the great hell's western gate opens. And the same thing happens with the western gate because it has four gates. So as they're opening, he's getting hopeful that there's an escape and he starts rushing and parts of his body are coming off, doesn't care. 
it can't be as bad as what's waiting for me on the outside. And he's on a mad dash to get to safety. But before he gets there, the gates shut in front of him and his face. So we saw Eastern Gate, Western Gate, then the Northern Gate as well. And then we see the Southern Gate uh, doing the same thing. Um, and then he gets caught inside. But eventually, because uh, after a vast amount of time has elapsed, suddenly he notices how finally the Great Hell's Eastern Gate opens again. Seeing this, he rushes towards it with great speed. But as he does so, he burns his outer skin, his inner skin, his flesh, ligaments and tendons, all burn in the flames, where even his bones begin releasing smoke, burning alive as he does on his mad dash for escape. This time, however, he finds himself outside the enormous gate of the great hell. So he makes it out of that box, huge box. But right next to the great hell, he quickly notices that although now being outside of it, he finds himself within the vast hell of feces, feces, excrements, which he falls into. He quickly discovers how he is overwhelmed by countless beings that are ferociously digging into his flesh with their needle-like mouths, piercing his outer skin, his inner skin. And after ravaging his flesh, going for the ligaments, tendons, nerves, and even tearing into his bones, as they reach into and start devouring his bone marrow. But although he experiences excruciating pain throughout, that is so severe and unbearably more than the mind and the body could ever stand, he still does not die from it. That is, until the severity of evil actions committed by him is fully dissipated and finished. Now, bhikkhus, parallel to and together with the hell of feces is found the hell of hot coals and ashes as they rain upon him. This is where he falls into next. But although he experiences excruciating pain throughout, we see the same theme. So until the severity of his evil actions are uh, committed, are dissipated, uh, he still will go through it. Further bhikkhus parallel to and together with the hell of hot coals, where hot ashes reign, is found the Simbali forest, the hell forest of red silk cottonwood, where each tree is more than seven miles in height. They are covered with sharp flesh-tearing thorns that extend out to 16 inches, burning and ablaze with flames. Each of the thorns are that long. And as the wardens continuously force him to climb up these trees, he suffers much while being mangled by these thorns from all sides. But although he experiences excruciating pain throughout that is so severe, he still does not die from it until the severity of his evil actions are fully dissipated. Further bhikkhus, parallel to and together with the Simbali forest is the hell forest of sword leaf wood. And as soon as he rushes into it, the sharp sword-like leaves blown by the wind fall upon his body from all sides, cutting his feet, cutting his hands, both cutting his uh, hands and feet together, his ears, his nose, both his ears and nose together. But although he experiences excruciating pain, he does not die from it. That is until the severity of his evil actions are finished. 
Further, bhikkhus parallel to and together with the Simbali forest is the great river of acid hell, which he falls into next. There he is carried mercilessly upstream and downstream as he is swept by the currents within it, burning alive in its caustic waters, acidic waters. But although he experiences excruciating pain throughout, he does not die from it. That is, until the severity of his evil actions are dissipated and finished. Then the wardens of hell reach in and pull him out with a hook into the acidic ocean. And after dropping him onto dry ground, they ask him, You there, what is it you desire? And he cries out, Sir, I'm hungry. At this, the wardens of hell forcefully pry his mouth open wide with iron, hot iron spikes as they shove into his mouth burning red hot and flaming iron balls. These burn his lips, his whole mouth, throat, chest, stomach, the intestines, the lower intestines, and finally borrow, and, borrow through and burn their way out of his body, dragging behind them his entrails. So his stomach and his intestines, everything falls out with them from the back. Uh, but although he experiences excruciating pain throughout, that is so severe and unbearably more than the mind and the body could ever stand, he still does not die until the severity of his evil actions are dissipated. Um, by the way, a few words about these hell wardens. Um, I once had a, a student ask, well, these people, uh, well, these are beings, who are they? You know, hell wardens, like, do they live there? Are they assigned? Well, what is this? Should I believe this? Um, you know, and uh, the more pertinent question is, um, won't they also, these people who are torturing, won't they also, uh, or aren't they already accruing uh, kamavipakas? Because they're causing pain to someone else, even in hell. So this is a, a more valid question, uh, I would say, uh, quite a valid one, yes. Um, and something that gets to be omitted or not even addressed. It's important to consider how these um, manifestations are simply another aspect of one's own evil actions and unwholesome tendencies. You don't need hell wardens. You don't need people to be tossing you in this or that and punishing you, your own tendencies that got you there in the first place are doing the job already. So this is not, so our own evil kammas, that momentum that we have started. Sometimes we see children or sometimes we see young kids or infants in some cases, or elderly individuals that behave in a way that raises a few eyebrows, meaning they behave in an evil manner, unwholesome manner. And you see the parents and you don't see any elements or evidence necessarily from an external source that would cause you to think, well, this child is seeing this. whether it's hoarding something, greed, 
punishing someone else, hitting. And I've noticed this also uh, in elderly individuals as well, where this meanness comes out. People say rude things to each other or to others. Um, well, there is a tendency that is playing out. It's a momentum that has started. A momentum that has started and now you're just seeing another manifestation of it. It's a different stage or phase in the process. So there's many beings caught in hell. So at the very least, you're going to need one or more hell wardens to do all these things. So, you know, uh, so it's not, uh, I, I don't find it uh, useful or even uh, uh, helpful uh, or even wise uh, to think of these as separate individuals, because ultimately you cannot make new kamma in hell, basically. That's not possible. You can taste the vipakas, you can be on the receiving end of them, but you cannot make it, including, let's say, these hell wardens. That's why, oh, by the way, I've, um, I read some uh, places how some scholars have even termed it as, uh, this is uh, virtual reality presence uh, or some robotic some, some bhikkhus have even suggested, oh, these hell wardens are like robotic entities. Basically, they don't have um, the five aggregates, let's say, or consciousness. So they're just automated or like clones of some sort. All these I, I you know, I'm not a fan of. I don't find them to be pertinent to the Dhamma because basically uh, the person's own papa kamma the evil actions are doing, are enough, basically. You don't need external sources. We, we saw uh, how King Yama was not doing anything. He was just holding up a mirror. So even if the per these wardens aren't doing anything, the person is going, undergoing all these processes taking place to them. So then the uh, wardens of hell ask him further, you there, what is it you desire? Uh, after basically he underwent the hot iron balls that they forced him to swallow and they came out of his anus with everything else. Uh, and he cries out to them, sir, I'm thirsty. And again, the wardens of hell forcefully pry open his mouth wide with hot iron spikes as they pour burning and blazing molten copper into his mouth. Uh, by the way, in order for you to melt copper, you have to spend a lot more time than you would with silver, and definitely a lot more time than you would with, with, uh, with gold, because it takes its sweet time, which means it is going to burn for a long time, and it's going to be staying hot for a long time as well. So um, that's the reference to the copper um, um, that I see. This, uh, so this molten copper, burns his lips, his whole mouth, throat, chest, stomach, the intestines, the lower intestines, and finally gushes out as it burns its way out of his body, dragging his entrails behind it. By the way, it's not solid, like solid, like metal solid, the tubes, the intestines, all the way to the anus. Uh, 
that we, oh, it has to come out through there type of a thing. No, when you're dealing with just the physics of it, if we think about it, uh, it will, the body is soft tissue. It will burn through the intestinal walls, the stomach, and it will spew out like a sieve, like it would just be like a sieve actually, uh, like a uh, strainer. So just to get a, uh, a mental image of that. Again, these are useful. If Lord Buddha found it necessary to give suttas like this, more than one, by the way, then we have no excuses to avoid them. In fact, it is to our detriment if we do. Detriment to the practice, because the practice of, that we do, that we engage in, is not simply to feel good. It's not simply to have, ah, oh, this is good. Yes, I'm feeling restful. Yes, I'm in Upekka. No, we need to understand these things as well to have a bigger appreciation, a wider appreciation of the Dhamma. Especially in the context of individuals who say, well, I, I practice this week or this month. I'm going to be, you know, I'm good with one retreat a year. I'm fine. We're wasting time. Remember the five messengers that King Yama talked about. So, um, so no matter how difficult, the uh, unbearable it is, uh, he doesn't die from it until the severity of his evil actions are dissipated. Afterwards, the wardens of hell drag him and eventually toss him back into the great hell again. Uh, sometime, uh, so he's tossed back in there. Um, and the sutta continues with this section. So it breaks away from that person who's being tossed back into hell to King Yama. So we're back to King Yama at this point in the sutta. Some time ago, because King Yama, uh, this is Lord Buddha still uh, uh, teaching his students, the bhikkhu. Some time ago, because King Yama of the underworld began reflecting. Those who do horrible and evil actions in the world inevitably do face their consequences in the form of all these pun punishments. Oh, my wish is that I may be reborn one day as a human being. And I wish that during that lifespan, a Tathagata may appear, a perfectly awakened one into the world. Oh, I so wish that I may encounter and pay my respects to such a Buddha attending to him as he teaches me and I learn from him as I come to know and directly understand the Dhamma he teaches. This is very important to carefully look at. If you were King Yama sitting there on your throne and seeing all these people one after another come and go, and you need to have a very long lifespan um, as a King Yama to sit through every single person, you're not doing it like a collection, like a wholesale, you know, like a whole bunch of like a few million people sitting in front of you and giving them the whole thing about, okay, first messenger, second, all the way to the fifth. You're doing it with every single person. Eventually, it gets to you, if it didn't already from the very start, that, wow, 
all these people are going to suffer and are already suffering. If I were just like, I would like to, as a, as a King Yama, as a Yama God, you live for a very, very long time, very long time as a heavenly realm, a dweller, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a God. Again and again, we see Lord Buddha mention how the human birth is the most opportune, the best, if you will, dimension for a person to understand and appreciate life, its challenges, suffering, and face all the difficulties as they chisel themselves a new wholesome personality. Because you have just the right amount of, uh, relatively speaking, uh, suffering, possibility for it, and of pleasure. Now, depending on our karma, our vipaka specifically, um, we might be reborn at a time period, even as a human, or in a place uh, in, uh, on the planet that has more of the other, let's say. It could be more pleasure or more suffering, depending on if you were born, let's say, in some parts of the world that are in, uh, going through some major strife, or uh, in a place where you don't have that. Um, a place that you can think of, you know, somewhere in the Alps, let's say, in Switzerland, or somewhere in uh, you know, um, on an island in Fiji or somewhere in New Zealand where you're so far away from everyone and you're getting your food, everything else, this and that, not like these places are heaven necessarily. You could be there and you could be undergoing some severe aches and pains, etc. So we have to take it with a grain of salt. So the rel relational or relative uh, aspect of it has to be taken into consideration. But essentially, being in a heavenly realm versus a human realm gives you far less inclination to want to practice, to want to even listen to the Dhamma. When there's strife, when there's wars, all of a sudden people become more religious, more spiritually inclined, more, well, this could end, uh, you know, they, they don't think too much about their pleasures going to these vacations they're now thinking more about um, this is serious so we have to do something what can i do okay let me try to control my emotions this and that well if there are none of those conditions as in the case of a yama god he's not going to be interested in the the teachings of lord buddha so he has seen this again and again and that's why he's saying i wish in my next rebirth i am a human being reborn as a human being and at a time when there is a tathagata when there is a buddha who is teaching and i encounter the buddha and i attend to him and i learn from his teachings because simply as being a yama god does not necessarily mean that he is now completely beyond the hell realm. That's what we are seeing here, him saying, essentially. Because he's also going to be on the, the other side. 
he will one day be facing another Yama God, but as just a person, a puny person who's ready to go in and face the consequences of his evil actions. He's seen this. That's why he wants to make this uh, declaration or wish, aspiration, if you will. So there's a reason why Lord Buddha mentioned this also. Please pay attention to that. And this is uh, what's coming up next is very crucial, which again uh, should jolt all those uh, annihilationist view or, uh, or carriers or those individuals who interpret such a sutta as uh, something that should never be taken literally. I even had one scholar say, if we were to take these things literally, it just shows our, uh, that we are pathological. There was, you know, that's, I found that quite strange to come from such an esteemed, you know, individual that um, I had respected up to that point. So, but here we see what Lord Buddha is going to, um, well, how he's going to end this stuff. Bhikkhus, you must know this full well, that I do not say this having heard it from another source or as some other recluse or Brahmin's account. Whatever Lord Buddha shared with us, he gave us what uh, a vision of what he sees when he has the second knowledge and is able to see where a person ends up. And he just shared details, specific details. It's no longer just a miserable realm. Now we have an understanding of the different chambers and what that those entail. But he's saying here, this is not allegorical, folks. This is not symbolic. This is not mythological mumbo jumbo. This is real. And I have seen this. I know this directly, he says. And he continues, this bhikkhus is what I have personally witnessed, having known it myself by seeing and realizing it directly, that I now speak these words to you. I mean, is there another way of clarifying than this? I mean, he just put his stamp of approval on this. So he's, he completely shut it. So there's no loophole for a person to just dismiss as some people, uh, academicians and, and contemporary intelligentsia and the so-called scholarly type monks these days are doing. I once bought a book uh, on rebirth by a very well-known so-called scholarly type Buddhist monk, a very well-known one. Um, and I was surprised because all throughout the book that says clearly it's on rebirth, a Buddhist perspective. I don't know if that was the title. I don't remember it. Um, I read it a long time ago, but um, well, not that long. Um, and he says so many things, but he's using the modern day academician's voice, which means that he didn't have a voice. He would say something and then he would go and nullify it by uh, apologizing, as it were. These are the annihilationists that we have to be careful of. These are the ones who pull out the Dhamma from meditation. These are the John Kabat-Zinn type of people. 
that are misrepresenting the Dhamma, that are doing such a huge damage to the sasana. And they will be in the position of this person that we read about today in the hell realms because of the facts. We cannot misrepresent the Dhamma. That is one of the worst evil actions we can commit. So we have to be extremely careful that we do not have wrong view. Wrong view, because that is what leads the person there. And you don't need wardens. You don't need King Yama. Just the fact that there is Anicca is enough because we're going to drop this body at the end of this life as we die. And our consequences will take us the rest of the way. Having spoken thus about the hells, the Blessed One continued by adding these words. Those heedless human beings living in negligence, despite being repeatedly warned by the divine messengers, grieve for such a long time as they reappear in lower births, finding only punishment and torture in one miserable realm after another. But those heedful human beings who live peacefully within themselves, the worthy ones who live who leave ignorance behind, heeding the warnings of the divine messengers, live with diligence, never neglecting the noble Dhamma. They see danger in the drive to grab and hold, for those are the source of birth, death, and becoming, and as a result, release themselves by giving up and relinquishing, while destroying both birth and death. They are the ones who live appeased and contented. They rest secured while being extinguished here in this very life, finally safe and gone beyond the reach of all terrors and dangers, never to be touched by suffering ever again. Sad, sad, sad. definitely not the usual sutta that we have been used to going over, but one that nevertheless uh, must be in our repertoire of suttas that we uh, look at, uh, be moved by, and anchor ourselves so uh, much with so much more fervency uh, into the practice, to be more diligent, because that's what we have. We don't know how long of a life we have on this planet, in this body. So nothing to be taken for granted. So I will pause here and uh, uh, see if there's any questions and, and comments about the practice, the Dhamma, the Sutta. Thank you so much for your talk. Excuse me. I just wanted to say how, even though it's difficult, 
uh, hearing this sutta and seeing those images um, in the hell realms as to what awaits people who do evil actions, I also can help but notice how there is something comforting in it. <laughs> uh, what I mean by that is, you know, given what's taking place in the world today and throughout history, we uh, you know, know of many events, times when great evil actions were taken. For example, you know, if we think of the Holocaust, I only recently discovered that there were only 17 people tried and executed at the Nuremberg trials, where I thought, you know, <laughs> we know that there were hundreds of uh, doctors, scientists, you know, party members, uh, politicians involved in those crimes, but only 17 were tried and the rest, I, I, it, it turns out, were um, helped to flee to North America, South America, etc. But what's comforting is the, you know, the person who has the awareness of the afterlife, the hell realms, will know that even though these people might have lived long lives and uh, maybe even died comfortably after what they did, they, you know, the nature's law will look into it that they, you know, experience that justice is served, basically. So I think for someone who excludes the possibility of something awaiting them after they die, may feel disheartened and, and say, that's so unfair. You know, these people tortured, killed, raped, abused, and now they lived a long life and they maybe died comfortably. So that can leave them feeling angry, disturbed. But if we come from a place of trusting that, you know, yes, they did what they did, they died the way they died, but that's not it. So justice will be served. So for me, it's sobering, but at the same time comforting. Hearing the sutta and knowing that there are laws, there are laws of nature that are the case always. So I thank you for bringing this to our attention, especially now, uh, given what's going on in the world where many people are feeling hopeless, helpless, and but this is this is comforting this is comforting mm. yeah that's what i wanted to share thank you mm -hmm. thank you for um opening your heart and sharing those feelings and thoughts with us yes um, um even something like this is is it almost is like that image that Lord Buddha gives of a splinter that has gone into the skin, a wood splinter. Uh, you need something as sharp as that to pull it out. So we are so deep in ignorance, especially now in the world. And that's why I was so strongly uh, toned against uh, Buddhist teachers out there who are misrepresenting the Dhamma. Um, 
the sharpness of it has to be there. We shouldn't make it a dull. A dull object is not going to pull this very, very sharp, tiny little thorn, a cactus thorn, whatever it may be, from the skin. You need something that is equally sharp, if not sharper. So we have dulled our senses. And that's what meditation is trying to do when you are, what is satipatthana after all? If not sharpening your awareness to make it so fast, so rapid, so able to pick up a sensation, an arisen sensual thought, an arisen hateful thought, um, a moment of anger, etc., evil thought, um, to pick it up at the moment, at that point where it cracks through the surface, to be there waiting for it, that is sharp mindfulness, that is sati. And this sutta is another tool that Lord Buddha is using. Because one can deduce that perhaps there were monks who were slacking off in their practice. One of the worst things you could do is, is uh, as a teacher is if your student is uh, dull and lazy and lethargic or just, you know, blase, completely not invested in the practice to say, yeah, just take a time out, just go and spend a few more weeks without meditation. You must have a very good reason to do that if you did. But otherwise, you would have to get the person to be more invested with this sense of survival, of impending difficulty or danger. One of the ways that the uh, monks, practicing Buddhist monks, and the way I see it, every Buddhist monk is, should be a practicing Buddhist monk. There's no other. Uh, one time when I just ordained, there was one monk who showed up and uh, he wasn't happy with the way I was conducting my life. And he said, no, 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 you go ahead and live your meditation Buddhist monk thing. I'm going to be my thing. I'm a scholarly Buddhist monk. So we have to be practicing. Just a side note. So uh, as you're doing this, When you have the sharpness of satipatthana, you are now, so basically this is serving its purpose. Now, now you are present with your evil thoughts, with your evil words. A thing that I shared with a student uh, yesterday was this. When you have a thought and you're lost in it and it's so like, it's so important and you cannot miss it. Okay, this has to be thought through. A word, something you're going to be engaging in speech with, you're committed, or you're saying it and you're like, no, 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 I have two more sentences that I have to finish off. Or an action that you're involved in committing. Pause for a millisecond and ask this question. Is this taking me to Nibbana? Is this going to take me to Nibbana? Me saying these words to you, is it essential? Is it taking me there? 
How about this action? How about this action? So if you can just use that formula, it can be very powerful to establish a sense of urgency because that's another thing which is lacking today in the sasana, the urgency. In Buddhism, in the Dhamma, we have uh, the word to describe it as sangvega, urgency. So many different Im images that Lord Buddha gives. Um, I mentioned in the past how he says, um, it's like a person whose hair is on fire, his turban is on fire, or his beard and hair over his head is on fire. Will he postpone it? Will he delay it? Yeah, next week, maybe Thursday at 4 p.m. Uh, we'll, we'll cater to this. So I'm glad this sutta was using your word uh, comforting because it definitely has that, uh, it can have that quality for a practitioner. So such a sutta or similar ones as well uh, will help us to be practitioners and therefore not waste time and have the person, instead of sending them off, who's, who's lazy, who's drowsing off, who's sleeping for whatever reasons, the Buddhist monks, the practicing, practicing Buddhist monks, the teacher would have the bhikkhu go on a fast, meaning not to eat for some time. Uh, obviously they're under supervision, they're being watched carefully to see and the person is also being encouraged to watch and observe their own body reactions. Because something wonderful happens in such a case where a person is, what, what you have often is basically we're overeating. Today, you have very, very chubby and fat Buddhist monks. And it's, you can't blame it on the Pindapada because not, we don't have that many monks going on Pindapada. I get that. I understand that. Where I live, I can't go on Pindapada. They probably will arrest me and something. But that doesn't mean that I need to finish off what's in front of me. Or I need to jump into the refrigerator and, and devour whatever I feel like eating. Hence, chubbiness, fat. Well, what is that going to do? It's not going to make a person become more collected. The Buddha was not chubby. <laughs> he wasn't. Uh, by the way, that, that figure, Chinese uh, figure that many people who don't know about the Dhamma, many people think that that was the Buddha. And I have to again and again reiterate this, explain to them that this was not the historical Buddha. This is actually uh, from, uh, from China. It's a Chinese, um, um, almost adorable character but also is entwined into the folklore of that culture. So when they came to the West in 200 years ago, the Chinese immigrants, they also brought that with them because it's a, such an important part of their culture. Well, Westerners, they looked at it and they said, oh, okay, so that's a, you're a Buddhist also, so you're, uh, no. Okay, so he wasn't chubby. <laughs> So I say this because the fasting creates the sense of urgency. 
because now you have your body, your body sees that, oh, okay, so I'm going to be satisfied with whatever I had eaten two days ago. And the mind becomes clearer by the third day. And the fourth day, you feel like it's like smooth sailing, as if all the upheavals you went through the first, second, and third days are gone. So you're sharper. So such a lethargic or sleepy meditator now finds strong footing in the practice. And uh, I've done fasting. I know people have done fasting as well. And even working out, the person can lift more weights, heavier weight. You can do more chankama, more walking meditation, even though you haven't eaten for a few days. So there are these tools, but they go contrary to looking at what is comfortable. And think of King Yama's uh, aspiration, how he wanted to become a human being. Because as a human being, meeting Lord Buddha, such a rare opportunity, makes it possible for you to experience jnana dasana, the ability to see the dhamma, the vision. So, uh, yes, and uh, coming back to your own example of, of uh, few people were punished in a sense or had to face consequences were, while the, mean, the real main figures got away, basically. And probably they've been behind what's going on in the world all these years. I don't know, they're apprentices, I guess. But I remember in 2008, 2010, when there was the housing market crash, tens of millions of people lost their homes just in the United States of America. People were left out on the street, their livelihoods, their homes that they had invested, they put their down payments on, et cetera, et cetera. They were gone. Not a single banker was arrested. Not a single investment person, Wall Street, not a single one even got a slap on the back of the hand. Now, the world today is obviously being run by these huge, huge, powerful corporations. We know that. Again, I'm not going to get into politics or whatever. I'm, I'm trying to avoid getting into it, but just enough to clarify how these individuals are promoting this laissez-faire attitude, like, yeah, it's okay, you know, whoever can get away with it has gotten away with it type of a thing. Well, that is the secularist or atheist or the annihilationist, as Lord Buddha would use in Pali, um, I forgot the name in Pali, but in English, that's the equivalent, the annihilationist view, meaning if I got away with stealing from you, torturing you in life, taking your food from your, the mouth of your children, your home from under you, over your head, all of these things, and nobody touched me, I'm fine. All power to me type of a thing. This actually is a wonderful sutta for those people. Uh, and a few months ago, I think I did another audio impromptu talk where I addressed how these individuals who are so powerful, who are getting away with so much, and those Dhamma teachers who are kind of softening the edges and saying it's okay and not avoiding, dismissing such a sutta as today. They're, playing, they're in cahoots with this. 
They're part of it, I would say even, because they are not trying to sharpen people's wisdom to say what is happening. We need to grow a backbone, folks. Lord Buddha was the epitome of that. And that's what we need in our practice. So this sutta is definitely comforting in that regard as well. So I appreciate your thoughts. And those were my thoughts and response. I hope they're satisfactory. Again, not many people are going to like this. But uh, again, who cares? We care about the Dhamma and what the Dhamma can bring into our lives. I'm not an entertainer, I will never be, because my example is Lord Buddha himself, and Lord Buddha was never an entertainer. So um, we're in the business of waking up. Sansara. So any other thoughts before we close? Yes, Greg. I'd just like to make a quick comment that I found the sutta really good. I don't remember who it was that said that hell is full of monks. And your comment earlier about the scholarly monk reminded me of that. Uh, I'm sure every one of us believes that we're on the path and we are learning what we need to learn to reach Nibbana eventually. But it really shows that simply sitting in meditation isn't remotely good enough to get what we what to do there because um, the monk, even though he believed he was a scholarly monk, reading all those suttas, and I'm sure he believed that he was doing all the right thing, he missed out on the opportunity to go out and to do those good actions that are needed. And I can just imagine him in his next life talking to Kim. King Yama and hearing the same things and having to give the same answers that he didn't, he was too busy doing his Buddhist study to actually take action and help all of those people that in the five different versions that we, they needed to do. And that I think that's a great wake up call to not just sit down on the mat and meditate. We really need to get up and take action and uh, to create good karma and to make that generosity in our own minds and goodwill to help. I mean, that's, that's a really great wake-up call. Thank you for that. that exactly. Uh, it's, we have to be unafraid of saying what needs to be said. And the Dhamma is all about that. It's truth. You know, another definition of Dhamma is truth. It's not just doctrine, it's not just the Buddha's teachings or phenomena or principles, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, or nature, but it is truth. So we need to be audacious. We need to be like strong enough, have the fortitude to say, well, Bhante, sorry. What about the, how could you explain this to me, please? Could you explain this and your behavior here? Why do you need such a big, I don't know, mansion or a monastery? Why does it have to be 158 acres? Can it be, can it not be half an acre? What are you going to do with it? Or why do you have to be writing so many different books so fast? Or why do the words of Lord Buddha always have to go through the mangler of your own 
interpretation, your screening process, and coming up with your own versions without giving uh, credit to the actual poly work, because now you're tossing us all in dismay because we don't know what you're talking about. Use the poly, please. So what I'm trying to do is say is the impressing part is also an indicator of what is underneath. Remember that bit about wrong view? Wrong view is so subtle, it's so sneaky, it's so powerful that it can even camouflage itself as Dhamma. And that what you just said is people have come up with this, oh, I'm a scholarly monk. I have this many acronyms behind my name, this and that. Well, tell me about the quality of your life. This is not against the again uh, against uh, bhikkhus or anything. Uh, it is against the defiling elements within our society. And as practitioners, we need to hold our teachers accountable always. Again, we get this from Lord Buddha himself. If you don't believe me, go check the Vimansaka Sutra in the Manji Manikaya. Investigation of our teachers. But most importantly, even if the world around you is most corrupt and the Sangha is corrupt, okay, take the examples that you have in the suttas and apply them in your own life. You might not have an arahant next to you. You might not have Lord Buddha next to you. You might not have him whispering in your ear. But you do have your body. You do have your body. Use it, Lord Buddha says. That is the greatest teacher, Lord Buddha says. Stay with the body. Whether you're practicing metta, you still must experience metta towards yourself, towards your body first. First. But as we've done with, especially with the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, you saw how many different phases of it. The first portion on the Kayalupasana was covering, Lord Buddha spent so much time on elaborating, unfolding, and showing us the different ways that we can utilize the body as a means to attain Nibbana. So even if you are living at a time where there is still Dhamma, which fortunately we have it now, still, even if we don't have any arahants, which by the way, we do have arahants, um, and you have a body, you do have the means to awakening, full awakening. So after having said all those things about the negative elements in society, especially within the sasana, that should not become a deterrent for us to be practicing, practicing nor to make us lose faith in our practice. Remember, it's pachatang vedita bovinyuhi. It is to be realized by the wise for themselves, by themselves. So I don't care if you're surrounded by scholarly type pseudo monks or pseudo teachers, it doesn't really matter ultimately. Ultimately, it is what you are doing with the Dhamma that you have gotten so far in your hands. Apply them. Even a tiny little bit is a lot. Remember, Webu Sayadaw said, you don't have to know all the suttas. You don't have to know so many techniques. Just one. Just one. Remember, 
don't leave the train. Don't leave the train to Mandalay, you would say to students. Mandalay is another city in Burma, Myanmar. Don't stay in your seat, don't leave. And um, the reference you made uh, about uh, monks, uh, oh, hell realms are full of monks. That actually is something that I read in Ajahn Mahabua's work. And he was oof, tough, real monk, an arahant, a monk who lived the Dhamma, who didn't know as much Pali, who didn't know as much uh, suttas. He would say this openly, but he was an arahant. He had taken whatever his teacher had given and treated it as if it's, you know, it's his eyes. He's like so careful, protective, applying it again and again and again and again, checking with his teacher. But he saw, as an arahant, you would see, he wasn't also, as the case was with Lord Buddha in his statement at the end of the sutta, where he's saying, this is not hearsay. Decide, seen directly, know it directly. Same thing with Ajahn Mahabua. As an arahant, the second knowledge is the ability to see those two houses. Remember in the beginning of the story, the two houses, you're standing there, you're seeing people, beings, not just people, but beings come and go. He was seeing it. And he was not making just a statement loosely like that. There's tons and tons of bhikkhus in the hell realms. Well, you don't have to go to the hell realms. You could see them now in life. You know. So again, this is, I don't want to make it a, a critique of, there's a lot of good bhikkhus as well. And traditionally, we have been taught to not speak well, that is one of the worst things because people have misinterpreted the Vinaya rules. As a bhikkhu, for example, you're not supposed to because they would interpret that as separating the Sangha. But by them keeping quiet and seeing the elephant in the room, ignoring the important fact that lay people who support the Sangha, the lay people were fully cognizant of these things and they were losing and they are losing their confidence and faith in the sasana. Lord Buddha in the Anguttara Nikaya, he is asked, I think by Venerable Mahakottita or Mahakasapa as to what are the reasons or reason for the sasana one day to disappear. And Lord Buddha again and again clarifies and says that it is not some external force from outside, but it is the disrespect towards the teacher, disrespect toward the triple gem, and the disrespect towards the practice, he says, the training, patipada. That is what breaks the sasana. That is what kills it. And that's what's happening. But you guys could actually reignite life. And you are. Every time you're sitting to practice, you are. Every time you're opening up a sutta and genuinely submerging yourself into it. 
trying to understand what is Lord Buddha trying to say and let me go in to practice. And take it with you. Take your mindfulness. Hold the hand of your mindfulness with you wherever you go as you're moving your body. Even as in, we saw in the Indriya Bhavana Sutta where Lord Buddha says, even when you're opening and closing your eyes, can your awareness be with each of those winks each time your eyelashes come together and separate? What a powerful image. Can we do that once a day? That's a challenge. Let's try that. Already you are keeping the Dhamma alive. So if anything, this is an effort to bring back the zest into our lives, into the practice, which automatically keeps the Noble Eightfold Path alive and kicking. Because remember, before Lord Buddha died, people approached him and asked him, Bhante, um, will there be uh, people who become awakened in the future once you're, you're gone? And he says, so long as there's the Noble Eightfold Path being taught properly, so long as there are people who are teaching the Noble Path properly, and so long as there are people who are practicing the Noble Path properly, starting with right view, then the world will never be, never be short of arahants. So I'm looking at a group of arahants to be here. And let's keep, keep the practice going in our lives, being cognizant of what's happening around, but mainly the focus is on us. Who cares if there are bhikkhus or whatever in the hells or whatever, who cares? Ultimately, that is their defilements that got them there, not mine. And whatever they do now in the world, that's, those are their defilements if it's unwholesome. That's never going to take me to the hell realms to face King Yama. My objective is to have you all cut the cord to the lower realms, to the four lower realms. And to have at the most seven more lives to deal with by becoming Sotapannas yourself. That is my aspiration. That is my hope to you, every one of you, and every one of the listeners. So I will pause here and let's let's close. In fact, uh, if you have still if you have a question, you can email me. But uh, let us share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May you be well. May the triple gem uh, and its blessings be upon you and all your loved ones. And may your practice continue growing. And until next time.